Greetings in the name of our risen and ascended Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's great to have you joining us for this Bible class. I am Pastor Glenn Thomas. I'm a senior pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. We welcome you if you are listening to us over KFUO, 8.50 a.m. in the St. Louis area, or anywhere around the world listening to us on KFUO.org. Again, welcome. We are going to be looking, as we normally do, at the lessons for the coming week. Uh, that, that will be Trinity Sunday, and we'll be looking at, uh, first of all, an Old Testament lesson, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4a. That, uh, of course, is the creation account in the book of Genesis. We will be uh, looking then at a continuation of Peter's message on the day of Pentecost, this Sunday being Pentecost, uh, when we celebrate the promise given by Christ that the Holy Spirit would come after he ascended. And uh, we're going to be looking at, again, a continuation. We had the first portion, uh, one, verses 1 through 21 in, in Acts 2 last week. Today we'll be looking at verses 22 through 36. And then finally, the gospel lesson that we'll be taking a look at is rather short, actually, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Before we get into the Word of God, though, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the blessings that you continue to shower down upon us, blessings that we have no right to think we deserve or that we are entitled to receive from you, blessings that come strictly by your grace, your undeserved, unmerited love and favor for us. Especially do we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, and for his life and death and resurrection once again, and that knowing through him our sins are forgiven and we have everlasting life. We thank you also, especially this day, for the gift of your Spirit to the Church, who calls us to faith, keeps us in that faith, and enlightens us, of course, with so many gifts. We pray the Holy Spirit will be present with us here as we continue in the study of your Word that we might continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding of that word, but especially also in your will for us as your children here on this earth. Bless us then to that end, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we're going to be looking at the lessons for next Sunday, uh, which is Trinity Sunday, and that is, of course, Sunday, June 7. And you'll notice that the lessons, each of them, have a, might call it a Trinitarian component or tie-in, and uh, we'll be talking about that as we go through the lessons. I actually want to begin and take these lessons in reverse order. Uh, my reason for doing so is that, again, the Old Testament lesson is so long. It is Genesis, all of Genesis 1 and four verses of Genesis 2. And I'm just afraid that if we start there, we may not get to the other two lessons. So I'd rather uh, begin with our gospel lesson, then go to Acts chapter 2, and then finish up with the Genesis account. Hopefully we'll have enough time uh, to at least hit the high points there as well. So our, our uh, gospel lesson is Matthew 28, 16 through 20, the so-called Great Commission that Christ gives to his church through the disciples. And uh, let's start with verse 16. Let's read the whole thing through. It's rather short, and then we'll go back and talk about it. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. All right, so now we go back. In verse 16, the 11, of course, that's the 12 disciples minus Judas now. They uh, have not yet replaced Judas with Matthias, and so is the 11. They go to Galilee. So they're no longer in Jerusalem. They're no longer in Judea. This, of course, is where Christ uh, told them 
that they would find him after he rose from the dead. It's also where he told uh, the two Mary, the, uh, sorry, where the angel at the tomb told Mary Magdalene and the so-called other Mary, we think that's Mary the mother of Joseph, uh, in, uh, chap- in chapter 28, verse 19 of Matthew, that uh, they, they should go to Galilee and there they will see him. Tell the disciples they should go to Galilee and there they will see him. So uh, this is exactly where he promised he would be, so to speak. And uh, he is, he is uh, uh, going to be coming, I'm sorry, 28 verse 9. I think I said 28 verse 19, but 28 verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So that's exactly uh, where they do see him. He is uh, spoken of in verse 16 as uh, going to a mountain, the mountain in Galilee. Uh, There's been a lot of speculation about exactly which mountain this is. In the end, we we have to say we don't know for sure. It's not certain. But there is a lot of tradition that says it was the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, the very same place where um, Peter, James, and John went with Jesus, and he was transfigured, and Moses and Elijah uh, were up there with him, and so on. Uh, That's the tradition, is that it was the same mountain uh, to which Jesus had directed them. So notice that although Matthew does not indicate exactly which mountain, Jesus had directed the disciples to this particular mountain. Verse 17 when they, the disciples, saw him, Jesus, they worshipped him, uh, probably bowing down and uh, showing him homage, uh, which is so, uh, so appropriate. And then a shocking phrase, I think, when we read it, but some doubted. Some of the disciples even doubted at this point. How, how do we deal with this? How do we interpret this? It is clear that the disciples, uh, at least some of them, maybe more than others, just had a hard time processing everything that was happening, trying to understand and and put it all together. Um, We look at, for example, in Luke chapter 24, verse 38, and this is when Jesus appears to his disciples um, and it's in the upper room, and notice um, what they what they say here. Uh, Jesus says here in verse. Uh, well, let's go back to verse uh, thirty-eight. And he said to them, the disciples, "Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have." So here, Jesus describes the disciples in verse 38 as being troubled and having doubts arise in their hearts. I think it's awfully easy for us at times to look back uh, with the totality of the scriptures and have uh, most things at least put together for us and have an understanding of exactly um, what was happening along the way. But again, the disciples certainly did not have the benefit of that. And so uh, this whole uh, doubting, the reaction in the upper room, kind of, uh, again, mirroring that, uh, it was not not doubting in the sense, we don't think, of of just rank unbelief or or total rejection. That's not what they're talking about here, I think. It's more uh, sort of a, is it really him? Um, what's he doing, uh, what's he going to do, just a lack of understanding. Is that really him? Um, but again, to many people, that you know, is, is a rather shocking uh, half verse to read, but I think we can understand it in that way. Verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Um, it, this is not, not to be understood in the sense that 
Jesus was not fully God as he was here upon this earth. But now even his human nature is exalted and given all of that authority uh, as well. And so uh, there is a connection here between the risen Christ and the glorified Christ. Um, We think of the connection with Philippians 2, um, that God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's that here on this earth, he did not, of course, in his state of humiliation, did not make full use of his divine powers. Uh, Now, the glorified and risen Christ is certainly going to be doing so. Now, there's a connection here between Christ having all authority in heaven, notice, and on earth, and exactly what he is going to tell the disciples to do. In verse 19, go therefore, and the therefore is very important, because of the authority that Christ has, all authority in heaven and on earth, he tells the disciples, now go therefore and make disciples, make students, make followers. And of course, we know the disciples, this is not their doing, it is God at work that brings this about, but they are his human agents uh, in, in proclaiming the word and administering the sacraments through which faith is created and faith is sustained. And so he is giving them, you might say, their marching orders here. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Notice how universal that command is. Not just of a certain people, a certain uh, either uh, uh, nation or back race of people, it is all nations. No one is excluded, uh, not by age, not by gender, not by any other human measure. And it says here, how do we do that? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And it's what we normally refer to as a Trinitarian baptism. Here is the obvious tie with Trinity Sunday. And while we don't have the time to get into it here, I would just point out that notice there all nations are to be baptized. And this is normally one of a number of verses that we as Lutherans will quote when we uh, talk about baptizing infants. That infants are included, of course, in all nations. There's no age restriction given here whatsoever. Infants, of course, we also know from Scripture that all of us are conceived and born sinful, turned away from God, and are in need of baptism. So, again, uh, this is just one of a number of passages that that we uh, would quote in terms of baptism and all of its blessings for infants as well. Baptizing them in the name of the Father. So, First of all, the Father, if we're baptized into his name, we have him as our Father. And of course, that only happens through Jesus Christ, who has brought us to the Father, has broken down the barrier of sin that stood between us and the Father. And now we have a right relationship with him and can call upon him as our Father. So in the name of the Father and of the Son... So, in the name of the Son, gives us all that Christ accomplished for us uh, on the cross. It gives us the name Christian, that we are one of his disciples, one of his followers. And notice we also are baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit, the life-giving, life-sustaining Holy Spirit who calls us to faith, as I indicated, and keeps us in this one true Christian faith. And uh, maybe just a point here that uh, we as Lutherans uh, do not believe that if someone else, let's say, is baptized in the name of the triune God in another Christian denomination, that we should somehow re-baptize them. 
Baptism is not our work, it is God's work. And if it has been done in the name of the triune God, uh, we certainly do not rebaptize someone, even if they at that time were in another uh, Christian denomination. Uh, again, God's promises in and through baptism are valid uh, all, for all time, uh, for all of our life, this side of heaven and beyond. Um, Notice that it's not just baptizing, but it is also teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That baptismal faith, it's not that, that baptismal faith and baptism gives us all that God has to give to us in terms of forgiveness and salvation and all the benefits that Christ purchased for us on the cross, but it is good that that baptismal faith is nurtured, is strengthened as the years pass. So we grow, as I said in the prayer, in our knowledge and understanding of God's word to us and of his will for us as his children. Where do we go to get that? The word of God, his revealed knowledge to us. And what a blessing it is. Um, we here at St. Paul's uh, are blessed with a Christian day school, uh, preschool, early childhood center, and so on. And as a pastor, what a joy it is to see our children be nurtured in that faith, uh, that they, they go home singing hymns, that, that uh, they go home and tell their parents what they learned in terms of their Bible lesson and so on. It is just such a joy to see it happening. And building, of course, that solid foundation of faith that when things get rough and tough in life, and there will be those times, that they have a firm foundation in the Word of God. And again, what a blessing it is for us as pastors also to teach uh, not only confirmation class where we see that a great growth in knowledge and understanding take place. Also, adult Bible classes, and to watch at times the light bulbs go off when people may have looked at a verse for a number of times during their life and now have a new understanding of it or see something additional in it that they hadn't seen before. This process of, of course, uh, being taught Everything that he has commanded us is a lifelong process. We never stop learning. I remember when I was in seminary, one of my professors talked about a Dr. Arndt, who was, uh, you might say, our church's expert uh, on the Gospel of Luke. And my professor said that when Professor Arndt retired from teaching, he was quoted as saying that he felt like he had just begun to scratch the surface of the Gospel of Luke. And so that just points out the depth that God's Word has and that we are never done learning. We've never learned all there is to learn. And what a joy it is to see people with a hunger for that Word of God. So it's baptizing and it is teaching and the promise that Christ gives there that, lo, I am uh, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So he doesn't just cast us out there on our own, tell us to go and do it ourselves. First of all, he is the one doing it uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit and the triune God, and he is the one who stands by us every day. When I was thinking of baptism here, I thought of a great paragraph that Martin Luther has in his large catechism, uh, written in 1529, of course, after he visited the, the uh, churches in Saxony, found deplorable conditions there, and wrote both the large and the small catechism in 1529. But this is the, in the section on baptism, paragraph 83, and Luther writes, In this way one sees what a great, excellent thing baptism is. It delivers us from the devil's jaws and makes us God's own. It suppresses and takes away sin, and then daily strengthens the new man. It is working and always continues working until we pass from this estate of misery to eternal glory. I've always liked that paragraph where Luther describes exactly what baptism uh, does 
and what it keeps on doing. I wish we had more time uh, to talk about baptism itself. Um, it's just such a rich, wonderful gift that God has given to us and gives us his gifts through it, I should say, as well. All right, with that then, we will finish our consideration. Now, again, remember, this is the gospel lesson for next Sunday. And again, the Trinitarian connection, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is very clear and easy uh, for us to observe. Now, I'd like to go again, as I say, in reverse order and go to Acts chapter 2. Uh, this, again, is a continuation of what happened on the day of Pentecost. We had the first 21 verses of Acts chapter 2 last week. And uh, let me just review a little bit about Pentecost in case you were not listening uh, to us last week or didn't hear last week's lesson. Uh, Pentecost is taking place now 50 days after Easter Sunday. And it is, another way of thinking about it, is it's 10 days after Christ ascended into heaven. Um, it is an Old Testament, it has its roots in the Old Testament, an Old Testament harvest festival where people would uh, give thanks and praise to God for the abundance of crops that uh, he had provided for them. You'll find it also uh, described uh, or referred to as the Feast of Weeks, W-E-E-K-S. In the Old Testament, that seems to be more the Jewish name for uh, this festival. And you'll also find it referred to as the Day of First Fruits or the Festival of First Fruits, and that meaning that they brought their first and best crops, the first ones out of the field, and the best to be offered to God at the temple as a thanksgiving, not the last and the worst or the leftovers. Uh, Jewish people came from all over the world. In fact, in the uh, account we have in Acts chapter 2, we have Jews there in Jerusalem from Egypt to Rome and everywhere in between. Uh, and they are there for that special festival. Um, on the morning of the last day of Pentecost, the great last day, farmers from Jerusalem would bring bushels and bushels of crops forward, and there would be a procession up to the temple in Jerusalem where they would offer these first fruits in thanksgiving to God. It was quite a ceremony. Uh, they would speak the Psalms of Ascent going up, Psalms 120. 20 through 136, as they proceeded to, uh, to Jeru inner Jerusalem and, and the temple. Um, on this particular day of Pentecost, God was at work delivering exactly what Jesus had promised, namely the coming of the Holy Spirit in a miraculous, extraordinary way to his church. There was the sound of a great rushing wind, uh, there were what appeared to be tons of fire that came and rested on the disciples, and the disciples began to tell the mighty wonders of God in known languages of the day, so that those who were visiting from all of these parts of the known world at that time could understand what these disciples were saying. It is then that... Peter stands up, and this really was the purpose. We should point this uh, comment on this. God's intent here on Pentecost was not just to give a great extraordinary event. It was to utilize that event to draw attention to Peter, the disciple Peter, and more importantly, the, the words that Peter would proclaim specifically about Jesus Christ. And so Peter begins his sermon... And we got the first portion of that last week. And so now we want to pick up uh, and continue. And uh, we get verse 4 here, just uh, recapping. Peter standing with the 11, and again, uh, uh, um, uh, with the 11 had been added, his, uh, Matthias had been added, uh, and addressed them. So it's Peter and the 11. Matthias has already been uh, added to replace Judas. So let's go now, we skip to verse 22 and following, and let's just work through this and making comments as we go. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders 
and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So here, Peter is pointing to the miracles, to the wonders that Jesus did. Um, and they, the people who were there uh, apparently had, uh, some of them at least, had seen these wonders. And Peter here uses a word sign that is very prevalent in the Gospel of John. Uh, John actually, it's one of his favorite words for miracles, calls them signs. And of course, a sign is something that points to something else or tells you something else. It wasn't the miracle itself. And of course, they were wonderful, giving sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and mobility to the lame, uh, bringing three people that we know of back to life once again. Those are wonderful things. But they pointed to something much more important even than that, uh, concerning Jesus, concerning who Jesus is, concerning what Jesus came to do, actually beginning the ultimate restoration that he would bring about first by conquering sin, death, and the grave on the cross, and ultimately will bring to full fruition on the last day when he returns and there is complete and total healing that takes place. So Peter points to these miracles or signs uh, as attesting to Jesus. Uh, we think of what John writes, for example, in John 20, verses 30 and 31, where he says, Jesus did many other signs which are not recorded in, the, in this book, but these are recorded that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and believing you might have life in his name. So see, it is these wonders, signs, and mighty works that all point to the fact that Jesus is the Christ. And this is exactly what Peter is saying about Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 23, Then Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter's pointing out that Jesus was delivered up or betrayed or handed over according to the definite plan of God. It's not as though Jesus or the Father were taken off guard or caught off guard by the events that occurred. In fact, remember how Jesus on more than one occasion said to his disciples, words to the effect that the Son of Man must go up to Jerusalem and be handed over to the chief priests, scribes, and elders, and be killed, and on the third day rise again. And as Peter points out here, Jesus was betrayed or delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Again, this was no surprise to Jesus no surprise to the Father, certainly no surprise to the Holy Spirit. And then it says, he's, uh, Peter says, you crucified, well, uh, maybe not specifically uh, everyone there at that point, but certainly among them, uh, the chief priests, scribes, and elders made sure that he was crucified. And crucifixion is, of course, the most excruciating, the most humiliating form of execution in that day. And he points out, not only did you crucify him, uh, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, uh, Moses writes that cursed is everyone who dies on a tree. And then in Galatians 3.13, Paul quotes that verse again. Uh, Cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. And so it was, you were cursed if you, thought to be cursed if you were uh, executed in that way. And of course, Jesus was made to be a curse, uh, taking on himself all of our sins. The one who was sinless was made to be sin and killed by the hands of lawless men. We think that lawless men is probably a reference to the Romans who um, ultimately Pilate and the guard ended up crucifying Jesus. Um, they were, of course, without the law of God for the most part. There were converts, we know. Verse 24, 
Notice the difference here between the way men treated Jesus and God treated Jesus. In verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So God, in, in opposition, uh, you might say, or in contrast, perhaps, uh, to the way men treated Jesus, God raised him up. Uh, a clear reference to the, the resurrection uh, and loosing the pains of death. Now, without Christ, death only has pains. It has nothing to offer, but for us as Christians, of course, death is but the, you might say, the doorway, the gateway to an everlasting existence in the presence of God. First for our souls at the point we die, then on the last day are both our bodies that are raised and made new and our souls. So uh, Jesus' resurrection loosed or set us free from the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus certainly is the master of life and death. Death is no match for him. He raised, as I said before, three people from the dead and rose himself from the dead. Uh, we go on then. Uh, for David says, now we're going to have a couple of quotes from David by Peter here. Let me just read first from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, Peter is quoting here. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. David is, of course, the author, uh, the human author that God is using to write these inspired words in Psalm 16. But we actually believe it is Christ speaking through David, or David's words, we should say, here in Psalm 16, at least in this section. Notice it's in the first person, in verse uh, uh, 25. Uh, I saw the Lord always before me, and Christ, of course, always beheld his heavenly Father. He is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. The Father was always there to deliver Christ, um, to defend him, and of course there is only one exception to that, and that is on the cross, where the Father, remember, was not only not at the right hand of Christ uh, to uh, bear him up, um, but in fact actually abandoned him on the cross, so that Christ would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Therefore, now, and that's because God was always at his right hand. My heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. The, the natural reaction to having that presence, my flesh also will dwell in hope. And that, of course, a ref referring ahead to the physical bodily resurrection that Christ will experience on the third day. Then, very important, verse 27 you will not abandon my soul to Hades. You know, the Father. You might say that although Christ becomes a curse on the cross, uh, he who knew no sin is made to be sin for us. After his death, however, the punishment is over. When Christ says on the cross, it is finished, he means not only is his life drawing to a close, but even in a stronger way, that word finished means to go across a finish line or bring something to its full completion, state of completion. He's talking there also about everything that he came here to do. His life, his death, his resurrection, in order to set the captives free, uh, in order to give his life as a ransom for many. That is now finished. So, God does not, the Father does not abandon the Son's soul to uh, Sheol or to Hades to, to, to suffer, uh, to go through torment, 
because the price has already been paid in full for sin and death. And sin and death and Satan have been absolutely uh, defeated. So after his death, notice, he is raised and is no longer a curse, just the opposite. And we talk about his descent into hell as the very first step in, the, in his state of not humiliation, but exaltation, stating that he did not descend into hell in order to finish suffering or pay any more price. He went there to, cl- to declare his victory and uh, to uh, have a, a visible show, uh, you might say, showing of his triumph. Uh, so he would not let his Holy One see decay or corruption, uh, sitting there decaying in the grave or abandoning his soul. So he's talking here, notice, soul and body. He will not abandon Christ's soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One, a reference to Christ, see corruption, see decay rather, or corruption, a uh, reference to a, a body decaying and being corrupted as it sits in the tomb. Uh, verse 28, you have made known to me the paths of life, and Christ, of course, has made those known to us and to all people. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. And that's where we know Christ is. We just, uh, last week, celebrated the ascension of our Lord, seated now at the right hand of God. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second. Going on in verse 29, brothers... I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. Now, here what what Peter is doing is saying that, look at this prophecy in Psalm 16 does not fit David because David's tomb is still with us. And without saying it, he's he's saying he, he is seeing corruption. He is seeing decay. And uh, so David doesn't fit that description. Uh, His flesh is seeing decay. Uh, Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, that's on the throne of David. And of course, that descendant turns out to be Christ. If you want to see where God promises this, you can take a look at Psalm 132, verse 11. Uh, Also, 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16, where God promises that one coming from the line of David uh, is going to sit upon that throne and it'll be an everlasting kingdom. That, of course, again, a clear reference to Christ, who comes from the house and lineage of David. Um, So, If David doesn't fit this, Peter is making the case that there's only one who does, and that is Jesus Christ. Going on, um, verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. So David, in doing what we just read, is actually foreseeing and speaking about the resurrection of Christ, that he would not see corruption or see decay. That he was not abandoned, going on here, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. See again, David is making the point that Jesus of Nazareth, not David, is the one who fulfills this prophecy. It fits him perfectly. Verse 32 This Jesus God raised up, and of that we, Peter and the eleven, is the we, we are all. We all are witnesses. Um, It was one of the criteria for being an apostle, that you had been with the risen Christ and been a witness of the resurrected Christ. And Peter is saying, and we all witnessed this very thing. Verse uh, uh, 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. I think we got into this a little bit last week. Again, the right hand of God. God does not have a right hand. Uh, He is not uh, a flesh and bone God, except for, of course, the person of Jesus Christ. But the right hand of God is seen as the place of all authority, all power. 
we have the phrase today, a right-hand man for somebody, a right-hand person for somebody. It's, again, that, that uh, position of great power and authority. Uh, remember, the mother of James and John came to Jesus and asked that uh, her two boys, James and John, when he comes into his kingdom, could one of them sit at your right and one at your left? Christ is at that position of authority and power with the Father. Uh, Verse uh, 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So this is Peter's explanation for what is happening. Christ is now at the right hand of God. He is pouring out, just as he promised, the uh, Holy Spirit. That is the explanation for what they are seeing and hearing with these uh, known language proclamation, uh, proclamations of the wonders of God. Verse 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, David here is quoting another psalm. He is quoting Psalm 110 and uh, pointing out that here David refers to this descendant that's going to come as his Lord. This is not, uh, so, so why does he call this descendant Lord if Christ is not the Lord? And again, pointing out here that This Psalm 110 refers to none other than David's Lord or Jesus himself. And um, Jesus, it's kind of interesting that Jesus himself very cleverly, you might say, in the Gospel of Mark makes use of this same psalm. It's in Mark chapter 12, and I just want to read for you very very quickly here how Jesus makes the, his, his hearers think uh, about who he is when he uh, quotes from this same psalm. We're in Mark 12, verses 35 through 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throne heard him gladly. So notice how Christ is calling his hearers to question that how can we call this descendant of David David's son, when David refers to him as his Lord, the same one who would be seated, seated at the right hand of God and his enemies be made a footstool. So Peter is in both of these cases, Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, making it very clear that David was actually prophesying concerning Jesus Christ that David fulfills neither of these. They are both prophecies concerning the coming Jesus of Nazareth. He fulfilled them perfectly. Then finally, uh, verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that would be Jesus, both Lord, or God, and Christ, or the Messiah, the Anointed One, this Jesus whom you crucified. And that's where our lesson ends for this week. Um, We know what happens, of course, in verses 37 and 38. Um, God works through these words of God spoken by Peter. And the people are cut to the heart. The law has its effect on them. They realize they have actually crucified. They've actually killed uh, the the promised Messiah, the coming Messiah. who is both God and Lord, and they are cut to the heart, it says, and they say to Peter, what should we do? 
Peter responds in Acts 2.38 and says, uh, arise, uh, Repent and be baptized, uh, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, of course, we know that this is what occurs and there are more than 3,000 souls added that day to the number who are being saved. And again, we've got to point out, what a testament to baptism. Uh, that, you know, for the forgiveness of your sins, he says, be baptized. And again, the connection with the Holy Spirit. That uh, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we believe that gift of the Holy Spirit comes right at, in, and through baptism. It's not something that we receive later on down the line after baptism. It's um, kind of analogous to if I say, uh, if I eat, I receive nutrition. Those things happen simultaneously, not, not uh, separated or segregated from one another. All right? All right, so a, another installment, you might say, of Peter's uh, sermon at Pentecost on Trinity Sunday. We certainly have references to all three persons of the Trinity throughout this message. And now I want to go back with the time we have remaining. This is what I was afraid was going to happen in the reverse if we started with this long Genesis account. This is, of course, the um, very beginning of, of time and creation. Uh, we see a couple of things. First of all, God is separate from his creation. He is not a part of his creation, as some false gods that have been worshipped down through the ages have uh, been thought of by their worshipers. Uh, he is not uh, a part of his creation. He is separate from it. He brings it into existence. He gives it form. He gives it design. He gives it life. And also, we want to point out, there is no room for a gradual, very, very slow evolving of these things uh, as the creation develops. Uh, the description of it here in Genesis simply leaves uh, no room for that sort of understanding. I just want to point out that uh, Genesis 1, uh, there are basically three main stages or sections in uh, this account. First of all, the first section or stage would be that matter is created out of nothingness. And that would be chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, very small section, that God brings into existence things that did not exist prior, uh, brings matter uh, into existence. Second stage is the ordering of creation, or giving his, his creation order or form. And this is in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. And here we have days 1 and 2 that are covered. Then there is the third stage, the filling of his creation. Uh, and that is the remainder of uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through 31. And this is days, <coughs> excuse me, days 3 through 6 in the creation account. So those three stages uh, are a way of, of looking at, I guess you could say, uh, the order of the creation. And we'll see how God is a God of order. First of all, let's start right off. We'll get as far as we can here. In the beginning, so in the beginning of time, there was no time. No, uh, nothing was there except God, of course, before this. God created. Uh, that word for created means to make something out of nothing. It is ex nihilo uh, in, in Latin. Uh, the Hebrew verb is, used, is only used of God. It is only he who can do this. Uh, we as humans, of course, can only take the matter that he has given us and make things or design and make things. It is only God who can bring something out of nothing. So he created the heavens. Uh, we might say the heavens, we're not talking here about the abode of God or the place where God resides. We're talking about uh, the sky and the cosmos, uh, everything beyond the bounds of the earth. So he made the heavens, the cosmos, and the earth. So notice here that is an act of 
love on God's part, uh, creating uh, these things. Going on verse 2, of, this is again the end of the first section, the earth was without form and void. So it was just, we might say, shapeless um, uh, matter, uh, shapeless, formless matter. So it was without form and void, and notice darkness was over the face of the deep. Uh, we think of the deep as um, being the, the uh, incredible depth that we see, for example, the, the, all the way to the ocean floor. Um, just a, a huge void uh, and darkness that, that is seemingly unending. And notice here, we'll make the Trinity Sunday connection here, and the Spirit of God, that would be the Holy Spirit, was hovering over the face of the waters. Well, we've got two people here. We've got, obviously, God. Normally think of that as God the Father, of course, creating. But we've got the Spirit of God here mentioned in uh, verse 2. We actually have to go all the way to the first chapter in the Gospel of John to learn that the Son was there as well. In fact, was more than just uh, there, was actively involved in the creation as well. Let me just read for you verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, who is this Word? Well, later on in verse 14 of John 1, we read that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Well, of course, that word that became flesh is none other than Jesus Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity. Going on here in John 1, verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. So he was there with God also. He is uh, co-eternal, you might say, as is the Holy Spirit, with God, never having a beginning, never having an end. And here's verse 3, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And so this word of God that later becomes flesh in Jesus Christ, incarnate, is at the creation as well. And it is all things, it says, were made through him. And without him was nothing that was made made. Going on, and so there's, again, there is the Trinitarian connection here on Trinity Sunday with this creation account, first of all. Uh, verse 3, now we're in second stage where we are seeing God actually put some order or some shape or form uh, to his creation, some design, we might say. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light. Notice how he just speaks it into being, just commands, uh, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. In other words, it was in accord with what he wanted. And God separated the light from the darkness. So we're not talking about the sun and the moon yet. That's coming later. All we have are the, you might say, the unformed, unshaped light and darkness. And they're separated. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Just a couple of things here. We see God making a very orderly way of keeping track of time now, and of the progression of time. And notice the order there. We would say it was, it was day and it was evening, day and night, uh, the first day. Other way around here, uh, more of a, a lunar approach, it was evening and morning the first day. And the Jews down throughout time, uh, that's the way they uh, uh, followed, you might say, their days. That's why the Sabbath day is actually for the Jews from sundown on Friday until sundown on Saturday. Okay, And uh, so uh, also I want to just say a word that this word for uh, day uh, is, the word, is the word yom, actually, in Hebrew, and it is used throughout the Old Testament in two ways. First of all, to refer to what we would normally think of as a 24-hour day, 
And secondly, it's also in some places used to refer just to the light part of the day. You know, we sometimes do that in English. We say that it's daytime when we're talking about it being light outside versus the nighttime. The point, of course, is that there is no indication either in the text or in any other use of this word anywhere in Scripture that it can be used or should be understood to be used as referencing just a, a nondescript period of time that might actually have been thousands, hundreds of thousands, or even millions of years. There's nothing in the text, there's nothing in its use anywhere else in Scripture that would indicate that it should be understood in that way. So, talking about evolution, talking about theistic evolution that attempts to combine both God's, uh, God's uh, work of creation with evolution just simply does not work uh, grammatically, it does not work scripturally, and uh, that's why simply we do not believe it. Uh, see that we are running short on time. Let me just uh, get through a couple more verses. And God said, let there be an expanse. Now this would be the sky in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So again, separating the, the water that's above the sky or in the sky and above it to the water that is below it and is going to be on the ground, on the earth eventually. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, or sky, we could say, atmosphere, say, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So again, notice that orderly uh, passing and marking of time. Uh, verse uh, 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. So here we have the earth and the seas uh, being created. Uh, again, arranging what is below the sky uh, now to be uh, very orderly and having a definite form to it. We are, it looks like, uh, actually out of time at this point. Um, again, I was fearing that this was going to happen. I wish we could have gotten through more of this. But hopefully this has been a helpful uh, study for you, and hopefully uh, the Holy Spirit has worked through his word as he promises uh, to be a blessing to you this morning. Let's close with the benediction then. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide.